The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Mode. Thank you so much for joining us here on CPA Academy. This is Matisco with CPA Academy. My pleasure to welcome you to this presentation. We're excited to get started here right on time. A lot of folks joining us for today's course, so certainly appreciate that. Hopefully you are engaged, ready to get going with today's session. Before we get too much further, why don't you go ahead and type into that questions panel, letting me know you can hear me clearly. You should be able to see that very first slide up on your screen as well. Make me feel a whole lot better that we're in good shape and ready to get going if we get a few comments typed in. Uh, and I'm seeing those come in right now. Peter, John, Percy, Jen, Kathy, Jamie, Steve. I can't keep up with you. It looks like we have a super engaged, attentive audience. A lot of folks typing in. You're letting me know where you are from. And I certainly do appreciate that. Just a quick reminder on how things work. Can't earn credit for today's course. It's very simple to do so. Just remain logged in throughout the duration of the presentation. We have polling questions like we do, typically do, which are part of the credit process. We're going to watch those polls intermittently throughout the session. You'll see those pop up on the screen where you're currently seeing that very first slide. All you have to do, select the answer you feel is most appropriate, hit the big submit button, and that will help record your attendance. Once we wrap up here today, we'll get to work on issuing that credit for you. It takes us about 24 hours or less to do just that. You'll see an email from us at CPA Academy letting you know it's all set and available in your account. We will record today's session. We'll have that posted later in the day today to our archive library. So if you miss anything or need to review it, more than welcome to do so. We'll also, we've also made a copy of the slides available as a handout. Right there in that handouts tab, there's also a copy in your CPA Academy account as well. So if you'd like to grab those, you are certainly welcome to do so. Joining us today in a group setting, everyone in your group setting can earn credit for today's course. Just one person needs to complete the proctor letter, which is in your CPA Academy account. Very simple to do so, and we'll get that uh, CPE issued to your entire group. All right, Mike, I want to say thank you so much for coming back and presenting to our members once again. Very appreciative of your time, all the effort that goes into creating these presentations and obviously sharing it with our members. So I'm looking forward to our hour and a half together. I know there is a lot to cover. So I'm just going to step back. I'm going to step out of your way. Mike, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much. Great, Matt. Thank you very much. I'm uh, grateful to be back again and uh, love doing these presentations. Um, this topic is a topic that is um, very engaging and one that um, gets a lot of attention these days. Uh, so I'm very excited about sharing it with all of you today. Um, the topic is um, worker classification or misclassification, <laughs> to be more exact. Um, is that worker an employee? Uh, Q&As on worker classification. So without further ado, we'll jump right into this. A little bit about me. Um, I am an attorney. Um, I decided after three years of law school that uh, I wanted to go back. I guess I was glutton for punishment. And um, I went back to earn my master's in tax law um, and spent a couple of years um, in the public defender's office. Uh, trying cases and uh, cutting my teeth on some uh, pretty heavy uh, criminal cases, um, then went into private practice, 
Um, and uh, basically, I'm just really passionate about the law and uh, love the intersection of the law with tax work. So as you can imagine, um, I do spend a great deal of time in U.S. tax court um, arguing cases. I also do a lot of work before um, IRS appeals. Um, these are some of the other uh, areas that I'm very interested in. Um, I decided to go to um, acting conservatory about two years ago and uh, will soon be graduating from one of the um, most um, reputable uh, conservatories in the city um, at the end of the year, which I'm very proud of. And um, a few other things, I uh, love to write and uh, love to run marathons. Uh, so let's jump right into this topic. Um, I'm going to give you some background information so you have um, a general idea um, of uh, how this works. Uh, I think it'll, you know, paint a good picture for, um, you know, what's to come. Basically, uh, the cost of paying human capital is among the largest burdens for most businesses. For good companies that value quality employees, it's a solid investment, home run. Um, at the end of the day, strong workers can make or break a business. Um, I think that um, every small business has realized that in some way, shape, or form. Um, the uh, more the workers feel invested and um, you know part of the uh, business, uh, the more um, you know the uh, the the more um, the business you know uh, continues to thrive. Unfortunately, however, for the less scrupulous peers, uh, paying for employees is kind of viewed as a uh, pain and that simply stands in the way of more necessary spending. So those are basically the two, uh, two viewpoints. And then you have a number of viewpoints that um, span um, the middle um, of those two extremes. The disdain for covering employee costs has, over time, developed into a startling and unfortunate trend, uh, which has come to be known as employee misclassification. Now, here's, um, here's a skinny on this. A W-2 employee costs a company quite a lot. I think that um, we are all aware of some of the uh, costs when it comes to uh, withholding from FICA to FUDA to Social Security taxes that the employer has to withhold. Um, the, I'm going to go over some statistics with you, but um, some of the statistics that came out about uh, five years ago um, stated that about 20% of the employee's paycheck um, is actually withholdings. Um, so uh, that amount actually is probably um, even smaller than uh, what it is today. And um, again, uh, when adjusted for inflation, would probably be higher. But uh, suffice to say, a W-2 employee does cost a company a lot. In many jurisdictions, there are requirements related to benefits and paid vacation time. And employers are required to pay a portion of employee tax obligations. Um, so if the trust fund recovery penalty issue is um, uh, is going off in your mind like a neon sign, then um, that uh, is exactly what that's, um, that's meant to talk about. An independent contractor, on the other hand, doesn't come with any of, this, uh, of these costs or baggage. Uh, benefits aren't required. 
Vacation time is rarely provided, and the employee pays all of his own taxes. Um, so win-win? Well, perhaps, but not always. Um, employee classification isn't just left up to the employer. Um, it's, it can't be something that the employer um, decides uh, he wants to um, he wants to do as far as classifying his workers. It's based on federal laws, and these federal laws um, cover aspects of work environment like scheduling and control over assignments. So again, um, it's not left up to the employer to decide. Um, how the workers are going to be classified if, in fact, um, they uh, meet um, factors that would um, bear heavily on an employee uh, status versus an independent contractor status. Uh, there's certainly, the employer does certainly reserve the right to um, uh, to uh, classify his, his workers as, in, as independent contractors to the extent that they meet the uh, factors and they meet the requirements. However, um, if they don't meet the factors and the requirements that we're soon to talk about, then the employer can't try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Um, and, and that's uh, the problem that um, usually comes up, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. So despite this, many employers continue to misclassify employees for personal gain. A 2000 study found that 10% to 30% of employers have misclassified workers. Uh, that same study found that 95% of workers who believe they were misclassified were indeed improperly categorized. Um, so what's interesting about that is that if the worker has an instinct that um, they're being misclassified, um, there's a very good chance that they're, uh, they're right on the money because that 95% statistic um, definitely speaks volumes of um, how they are um, how they are right on the money. Additional examinations have indicated that current rates of misclassification may be even higher than previously suspected. If we look at Ohio, for example, misclassifications increased by 53.3% from 08 to 09, uh, while in Illinois reported, while well, Illinois rather reported an increase of 21% from 2001 to 2005. So it's on the rise. These statistics paint um, a startling picture, but the government is adamant that they are um, cracking down on this alarming trend and um, are all over it. In 2011, the Department of Labor collected uh, whopping $5 million in back wages for 7,800 employees. Uh, what's interesting about all of this is that um, when it comes to employees who have um, who come forward and believe that they are misclassified, it usually comes as a result of an employee of, of a worker who is maybe injured on the uh, you know uh, injured at work and uh, realizes that uh, there's no coverage for him or her. Um, that it often gives rise to um, the um, the worker raising this issue. Um, there are other times, of course, uh, when, for example, the worker 
um, maybe has an axe to grind with the employer and doesn't get uh, a bonus that they might otherwise have been promised. Um, and that could give rise to the worker becoming a whistleblower, so to speak. Um, so it's usually during times where there is a dispute between the worker and the employer that this issue um, becomes uh, transparent and this issue uh, gets basically thrust into the limelight. If you think you may be misclassified or have a client that is misclassified, um, this is what you need to know and what you can do about it. So um, these are the taxes that um, are among the irrefutable realities of paying employees or earning wages. Um, we discussed some of them a little while ago. They're the income tax, Social Security, FICA, and FUDA. Um, all W-2 employees are required to have these amounts withheld from their paychecks by the employer. Uh, the same is not true for independent contractors. Um, and by the way, um, since I do cover this issue uh, for the trust fund uh, recovery penalty and in other presentations that I've done, um, there's also the, uh, the employee also um, has to contribute um, as well to um, various um, to various of these funds as well. So there's an employer uh, requirement um, to pay uh, some of these taxes and um, they are supposed to be withheld and there are an, uh, there's an employee obligation to pay some of these taxes. So it's uh, felt by both parties but um, not felt any larger though than the employer because the employer uh, usually picks up the brunt of this. Uh, what's interesting about this is when it comes to withholding these taxes, um, a collateral issue arises, which I'm sure all of you are aware of, where the employer um, doesn't uh, turn over the taxes that they were supposed to withhold. Uh, usually it's due quarterly. Um, sadly, however, some employers, um, you know, just uh, come on hard times and they can't pay their vendors. And as a result, they don't pay over these taxes uh, that they are supposed to withhold and pay over to the IRS. As a result, um, this can uh, cause uh, catastrophic consequences um, when the IRS comes calling for that amount and the employer is unable to pay it over. Uh, that's the topic for another presentation. But uh, suffice to say, what we are talking about here is an enormous tax burden that um, an unscrupulous employer would rather not have to pay for. And that's uh, oftentimes why the employer will try to put a square peg into a round hole by uh, classifying his workers as an independent contractor as a way to circumvent the payment of these um, rascally taxes, the income tax, Social Security, FICA, and FUDA. While this amount varies from one state to another, this can result in 20% or more of an employee's paycheck in withholdings each payday. Um, I, do, I do think that that is rather low, um, and I think if adjusted for inflation, it would be, um, it would be higher.
Uh, why is this significant? In 11, the Department of the Treasury estimated that every employee misclassified as an independent contractor saves a company nearly 4000 in employment taxes and $43,007 in salaries and wages. Um, that is just um, staggering uh, when you think about it. And again, this is for only one worker, uh, one employee rather. Um, so the savings are just uh, off the scale and one can see why um, employers go to these extremes to classify workers as, um, as um, independent contractors when they are actually uh, closer in line to employees. This trend has likely only risen after the Affordable Care Act was phased in. Um, if you recall, um, this uh, Affordable Care Act um, adds to the expenses accrued to keep people on the payroll because it requires employers to provide insurance for their employees. So um, the stakes have just gotten higher and uh, there is more um, incentive, um, in, incentive now for employers to misclassify their workers as independent contractors. Employers benefit when misclassifying, but the opposite is true for employees. So now we're going to take a look at this from the perspective of the employee um, and how the employee um, loses. In addition to an increased tax burden, um, independent contractors also lose the benefits associated with employment. Uh, so what are those benefits um, that are lost? Well, um, some of the um, uh, some of the most uh, apparent ones are unemployment insurance, workers' compensation for injuries, as we um, talked about um, at the top of the presentation. Uh, that is one of the leading causes for uh, workers to uh, become whistleblowers when they realize, uh, you know, for the first time that um, they are not entitled to any workers' compensation for injuries that they sustain on the job, um, they immediately um, take action against the employer and um, basically allege that they were under the impression that they were an employer, employee rather, and that they should be entitled to compensation for uh, their injury. Um, and that's what oftentimes opens up investigations against the employer. Uh, minimum wage and overtime protections um, are, uh, are, are not um, something that an independent contractor is entitled to. Uh, coverage under the um, Family Medical and Leave Act, um, that, is, um, that is very common for employees. And uh, for example, um, if a child um, is born and um, the uh, mother and even the mother's entitled to maternity leave, the father um, in some uh, in some uh, companies are in, entitled to paternal uh, leave um, as well. And then, of course, the safeguards of employment equality laws like Age Discrimination and Employment Act and the Civil Rights Act. Uh, so these are all the benefits associated with employment um, that independent contractors don't enjoy, but that employees do. Law-abiding um, business... Um, so did we want to jump in here and launch our very first poll? Sure. All right. So we'll go ahead and get poll number one up and going. And that should be on the screen. 
Again, polls are part of the credit process, even if you're not here for CPE. Certainly do appreciate you participating. Let's move things along. Let's us know it is working correctly. These polls should be pretty straightforward for everyone today. No right or wrong answers, simply just need to put an answer in there. Give this just a few more moments. And taking a look at the responses here, 47% say yes, 53% say no. So close to 50-50. Okay. If the answer is no, um, that's probably going to change in um, very uh, shortly. Um, I think that um, we are definitely poised um, in this profession to see a rash of these uh, cases come in. And I think that you can probably prepare yourself for seeing it from uh, both sides as well, not just the employer side, uh, but also the employee side. You may very well even have clients right now that are experiencing this in some way, shape, or form that uh, will soon be coming to you to pick your brain about um, how to uh, craft a, an agreement that might um, allow their um, intention of having their workers classified in a certain way uh, carried out. Uh, so we'll get into that in a little uh, bit. Oops, I apologize. This uh, is... Uh, Whoops. Oh, I went from the start. Okay. I apologize. Uh, I have a Mac and uh, for whatever reason, the Mac is a little stubborn on this uh, program. All right. So we uh, reviewed some of the benefits associated with employment. Uh, Law-abiding businesses are hurt uh, by the negligence of others as well. Uh, one recent study found that misclassifying employees can increase the cost of unemployment taxes and workers' compensation premiums based on the adjustment of participants in the general pool. Uh, part of the cost associated with employee benefits may shift to the general public, too. Um, this is interesting, and I didn't realize this until I did a little uh, bit of research into the social dynamics uh, surrounding this issue. But... Um, Underpaid contractors not eligible for insurance at work may opt instead for public assistance. And that's, uh, that's how there is a shift of costs uh, to the general public. And while seemingly insignificant, businesses that save money through illegal classifications gain a distinct competitive advantage. Under the law, uh, there are four available employment classifications. Um, so it's not as simple as um, merely independent contractor and employee. Uh, there are a total of four classifications. Uh, the first being independent contractor, the second being common law employee, the third being statutory employee, and the fourth being statutory non-employee. Uh, so we'll take a look at uh, each one of these. While there are similarities and differences in all of the categories, uh, the major difference separating employees from contractors is the element of control. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, that element 
tends to be dispositive and um, oftentimes rules the day when these cases are brought in um, uh, brought before uh, before a judge to be ruled on. So uh, what do I mean by element of control? An employer has the ability to dictate the work to be done, who should be doing it, how it is to be done, and what the end result should be. Um, that's kind of the be-all, end-all. If you're sitting down with a client who is an employer and the client um, tells you that um, he or she wants to classify his workers as independent contractors but states emphatically that he or she wants to uh, wants to retain this level of control, meaning dictating the work to be done, who should be doing it, how it is to be done, um, and what the end result should be. Uh, you need to um, you need to be very candid and uh, let the work let the employer know that um, uh, that uh, their that his his or her workers are um, that you know, are better, are, are going to be classified as employees, um, notwithstanding the fact that um, he wants them to be classified as independent contractors, because this level of control is suggestive of an employer-employee arrangement and not an employer-independent contractor arrangement. So again, this is getting back to the issue of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Um, if this is the underlying intention of the employer, then you have to break the news to him or her that um, the re that the workers are going to be classified as employees, notwithstanding the fact that um, uh, the employer wants to treat them as independent contractors. So this means that if an employer tells you that you personally must prepare a sales report using the data included in your sales reporting systems to be completed fully and accurately by the end of the workday. This is completely and fully his right. Um, however, because of the um, level of control that is um, involved in this um, example, um, this would be indicative of an employee-employer relationship. And um, that employee-employer uh, relationship exists, notwithstanding the fact that the employer wants to classify the relationship as an independent contractor employer relationship. Um, and some some workers are, or some employers might think that if they draft a contract or other signed agreement that um, uh, specifically uh, names the workers as independent contractors and classifies them as such, that that will supersede um, the um, what's really going on and uh, the level of control that the employer is exerting over the worker. But that is not true. So a contract or other signed agreement does not have the power to supersede the law. And this dovetails right into the doctrine of substance over form. And I think that it is, um, it's helpful to go over that doctrine to um, understand why um, what's going on um, 
practically with uh, the employer and the workers trumps anything that can be reduced to writing that might suggest otherwise. So let's expand on this doctrine of substance over form. Um, the doctrine maintains that the substance rather than the form of a transaction is what governs the tax consequences of the transaction. Uh, the effect of applying the doctrine is to produce a tax result that differs from the tax result that its form would otherwise demand. And this came out of a little known uh, Supreme Court case called Gregory versus Helvering back in 1935. And um, the court basically used that uh, very same language that we use today. Um, they say they held that as a general rule, the incident of taxation depends on the substance rather than form of the transaction. So if we were to apply this doctrine to the example that I just uh, mentioned before, uh, the court would examine the um, the court would examine the substance um, of the uh, relationship between the employer and the worker. And uh, that substance of that relationship would supersede anything that um, anything that was contrary to it, and that being the form, meaning a, a contract, for example, that states that the workers are independent contractors. Uh, that would be, the form. Uh, well, that does not carry the day. It's the substance. How are things getting done every day? Uh, what is the relationship between the employer and the worker? Does the employer have the right to uh, dictate the way the work is being done, where the worker has to do the work, how many hours the worker has to work on a weekly basis. Um, does the worker have to come into the office? Is workspace provided for the worker? Does the, um, does the employer provide the tools and training that's needed to do the work. This is all indicative of an employer-employee relationship. And it doesn't matter, um, and you have to set your clients straight because they'll think that a, um, a contract that, um, you know, that classifies the workers explicitly as independent contractors will rule the day, but not uh, so. It's, you know, it's the um, it's the substance of how things are getting done on an everyday basis that will carry the day. And that element of control cannot be emphasized um, enough. Uh, so since that 1935 case, various courts have disallowed a tax benefit associated with a transaction that has a form that differs from its substance. Historically, the government has relied on this doctrine to target schemes where taxpayers have intentionally mischaracterized a transaction in order to derive beneficial tax treatment. And so this is something that you really want to cover with your client if they are trying to engage in, I mean, let us say, uh, uh, some tax uh, hanky-panky. Uh, you don't want them to go down this road because um, this could turn um, criminal very quickly. So um, notwithstanding the fact that there are civil tax penalties that could leave the client with um, nothing more than the shirt on his back, uh, there's also the criminal 
aspect that has to that the client needs to be forewarned about. Now, should, should the shoe be on the other foot and the worker himself be given the right to direct and control the work to be done, the hours during which work can be completed, and who physically performs the work, then we're dealing with a different situation entirely. These um, aspects are far more in line with an independent contractor relationship. Um, so let's just go back once again. Um, if the worker himself has the autonomy um, and the independence to direct and control the work to be done, the hours during which the work can be completed, and who physically performs the work. Again, uh, this is more in line with a um, employer and independent contractor relationship. And so what this means is that the employer can offer a project to a contractor so long as the terms on which the project is completed are controlled primarily by the contractor and not the employer. In order to make this boundary a little clearer, the IRS um, published 20 factors and these factors are weighed in terms of their importance and applicability. Um, and they're used often to help businesses and workers understand where they stand. Now, I'm going to state uh, right from the get-go, because I have listed these factors, and I'm going to go through them with you one by one. Uh, one fact, no one factor is dispositive, meaning that if it is suggestive of uh, one relationship over another, then, um, then that supersedes all of the other factors. It's a balancing test. Um, for those who might be familiar with uh, the criminal justice system, um, and I do a lot of criminal defense work, it's kind of like the balancing of the mitigating and aggravating factors at the time of sentencing. Uh, the judge is instructed to basically um, look at mitigating factors that um, are favorable for the defendant, um, such as the youthful age of the offender, such as the um, uh, such as the impact that incarceration would have on the defendant and his or her family, um, and whether the um, you know whether the event was one that um, was, um, you know, uh, caused harm to the victim. Those are mitigating factors. Aggravating factors are, uh, are um, factors such as the uh, deterrent um, effect that um, this crime will have on the public and, um, you know, and uh, the fact that the individual might be a uh, repetitive offender, meaning that they've been before the courts before. And so the judge basically takes these factors and uh, does a balancing test to determine what the uh, defendant's sentence should be. Um, and so I only um, mention that because um, the same balancing test is kind of used here, uh, not the same factors, of course, because we're not punishing a person. We're simply determining whether um, the worker is um, more closely in line with being an independent contractor or more closely in line with being a employee. But again, uh, the main thrust of this is that it's a balancing test. Um, in general, if you jump in here with our next poll, absolutely. All right, this is number two. That one is up and going for everyone right now. 
Again, we'll try and get these answers in as quick as possible and get back to our content. Are you familiar with the four available employment classifications? We'll pass 90% having put in their response. Give it just a few more moments, get those last final answers in here. Again, if you're on your mobile device, you may need to mush your finger two or three times against your screen. Make sure it gets recorded before hitting the big submit button. Your answer will come through. Taking a look at the breakdown here, 70%, yes, 30%, no. All right, so we will definitely, um, uh, we'll definitely cover each category so you have a general understanding of, uh, of all of them. I think if you hit from current slide, Mike, that might do it. From current slide, okay. Yeah, right next to start. Um, this to your left. To my left. Uh, Straight up and then where, where the front start is and then now to your right. Now to the right. From card slide. Uh, okay. Uh, whoops. Oh boy. My apologies. Um, all right. Oops. <laughs> all right, I'll let you do it. <laughs> all right. Okay, good. We got it back. Um, so these um, these twenty questions. Um, if the answer to most or all of them is yes, the worker um, is an employee. And again, I, I want to be very careful because this is a balancing test, and so um, <sighs> the, there are some factors that are definitely uh, more. Uh, substantive and more meatier than other factors. But again, one factor does not dominate all of the others. It's a balancing test, but it's not a balancing test in terms of if eight go in favor of, of an employee and five go in favor of an independent contractor, that it's automatic um, that the worker is going to be an employee. Um, it's, it's more balancing because some factors have carry greater weight than others, but no one factor is completely dispositive of all the others. So uh, again, if the answer to most or all the questions is yes, the worker is an employee. If most or all of these questions can be answered with a no, the employee can likely be classified as an independent contractor. And again, you might be asking, well, why is this relevant? This is uh, what you're what you're going to do for the employer, you're pretty much going to go through the checklist here and um, have the employer review these questions or put these questions to the employer and um, begin to, um, you know, kind of get a, a sense of what type of relationship um, the employer is, um, you know, has already established or will soon establish with his or her workers. And this will give you the, um, the context for um, giving the employer advice on, you know, the type of relationship that it looks like from a legal perspective. And then adjustments, of course, can be made 
um, if you have an employer that is somewhat flexible and, um, you know, and wants it a certain way, uh, you know, probably towards independent contractor, um, if that's the case, then they might have to, then they'll be able to see in black and white that they're going to have to give up some control and they're going to have to provide more independence and autonomy um, to the worker in order to um, realize the ultimate goal of um, independent contractors, if that's what the relationship is that they want to establish. So here are the main points. Is the worker required to follow instructions regarding where, when, and how he is supposed to work? Again, the more control that the employer exerts over the worker, the more this is beginning to look like an employer-employee relationship. Is the worker provided with training prior to beginning work, like meetings, seminars, or other correspondence? Are the services offered by a worker integral to business operations and ongoing business success? Must any services be personally provided? Are any assistants hired, supervised, and paid? Is there an ongoing relationship between the hiring body and the worker? Does a service consumer set duty or work hours? Is the time committed by the worker performing services roughly equivalent to full-time hours? Is work performed on the premises of the service consumer? Now, I do have a note here that um, while plenty of workers do perform work at third-party sites and can still be considered employees, off-site work often suggests greater freedom. Uh, the applicability of this point will largely depend on the work being performed. Uh, so to the extent that the worker has the um, freedom to work uh, perhaps from home or from a third-party site and doesn't have to be in the office um, during uh, specific hours of the day um, and doesn't have to work on location, that uh, looks more like it is an employer-independent contractor relationship. Um, I should also mention, because in this laundry list of uh, factors, um, I don't recall seeing it, but um, if an employer were to ever restrict the worker from working for a competitor. Um, I can tell you right now that the courts um, frown on that. And, and I, mean, I mean frown in the context that if the uh, employer is preventing the worker from working for a competitor, then they're going to, um, the uh, courts that is, are going to view this uh, more as an employer-employee relationship um, because uh, the element of control right there is really, really tight. Um, and so it's very important that uh, the employer, if they're trying to establish a relationship with their workers um, of that of an independent contractor, that, uh, the, in, that the workers be permitted to work even if it uh, means that they're working for a competitor. Uh, you oftentimes see that uh, with um, workers who tutor for different companies. Um, they're freelancers and um, you know, they're, they have the ability and the freedom to tutor for a number of different um, tutoring agencies and don't have any restrictions. To the extent, however, that a tutoring company restricts them from working for other tutoring companies, then 
that tutoring company better be uh, better have um, uh, classified them as employees and better be withholding all of the necessary taxes. Otherwise, uh, they're going to be in for a rude awakening. Must services or jobs be performed in a set order or sequence? Are oral or written progress reports required in the course of performing tasks? Is a worker being paid on an hourly, weekly, or monthly basis versus a lump sum or commission payment? Are business travel expenses covered by the service consumer? Uh, so again, um, yes usually uh, means that it's looking like an employer-employee. Uh, no uh, is looking uh, makes it look like it's more or less an employer-independent contractor relationship. Is a worker provided with significant tools and resources to complete the work, like a computer or an iPhone? Does a service consumer invest in maintaining a workspace for the worker? Does a worker have any protection from liability in regards to the realization of profit or loss from his services, separate um, from the general liability that exists as an employee? Does a worker provide services for a single service consumer at a time rather than piecework uh, for multiple parties? Um, so actually, this does uh, dovetail into what I was talking about earlier. Um, and you should note that it is possible for workers to be employees of more than one company uh, simultaneously, and that has no bearing on worker classification. Are any services offered by the worker not available to the general public? Does the service consumer have the ability to release or discharge the worker? Is the worker able to terminate his labor agreement at any time without consequence? Uh, note that most service consumer worker relationships in the U.S. are more appropriately categorized as employee-employer connections. Um, I also want to just um, stop here for a moment to talk about how um, how we see things these days uh, with workers that are classified as independent contractors. Uh, there's usually an intermediary. And um, for example, uh, when I uh, graduated college, um, I went to work for a company uh, for an agency that uh, subcontracted me to Verizon Communication Services. And uh, the company happened to be, um, and they're still in existence, uh, they're based in New York, um, and they were basically um, the traditional companies that, uh, traditional company that uh, outsource their labor to uh, big uh, companies from, um, you know, big telecommunication companies to uh, big consulting companies like Anderson, um, you know, Ernst & Young and um, companies of that nature. And that uh, intermediary basically was the employer. And they were the ones that cut the paychecks at the end of the month. They were the ones that uh, could provide uh, medical insurance and benefits to the worker if the worker chose to pay for them. Um, and that relationship is viewed by the courts um, as one involving um, an independent contractor uh, due to the existence of the intermediary. In this case, it happened to be a company called Volt Services Group. And um, 
even though uh, the company um, at the time did provide workspace for the workers, um, for their independent contractors, we still had the ability to work uh, from anywhere and our hours were never um, set or defined. We could work as few as 10 hours a week. We could work as many as 60 hours a week. It generally was a type of relationship that uh, hinged on how many, how much work had come in and how much time and effort was needed to complete that work. Um, that being said, um, the hours were quite high. Um, however, um, and, and um, I should also mention that uh, the company, um, Verizon, did provide some equipment to its workers, uh, independent contractors. For example, I was uh, issued a laptop to use during the time period. Um, however, everything had to be done on a proprietary system. And so that was one of the ways that they circumvented that element of, you know, of supplies being provided to the workers. Um, so the proprietary nature of the work required that a company issued laptop be given to all the workers. Um, there was no set way that the work, um, there was, there were no, um, uh, there were no, um, you know, uh, seminars or meetings that were mandatory and uh, protocols that had to be that had to be followed. Um, however, you know, they wanted at the end of the day a uh, professional work product, and um, you know, again, that's all fair game. I mean, uh, just because um, the worker is an independent contractor doesn't mean that they have that they can't or that. Uh, they're not uh, responsible for providing pristine work and, um, you know, and uh, a, a professional work product. Um, so just to give you a general idea, when there's an intermediary involved, uh, the relationship um, is definitely viewed by the courts as being um, analogous to an employer-independent contractor relationship. Uh, due to the explicit nature... Uh, sorry to jump in again. Let's do our sure. third poll. All right, this is number three. That's up and going. Appreciate the questions that are being asked during the session. If we don't have time for the questions today, we do have a jam-packed uh, amount of content to get through. We'll make sure Mike gets a copy of all those. Once we Absolutely, and my apologies about uh, that. I will uh, answer all of the questions. Um, you know, that are posted uh, via email and, um, you know, with uh, in any format, um, you know, that I'm able to so that everybody gets the benefit of having the answers to them. Excellent. Certainly appreciate that. Answers rolling in here. Have you had any disputes with the IRS over the control element or worker classification? 15% are saying yes. Using 85% saying no. So back to you, Mike, and we'll figure out these slides here. Great. So um, let me just blow this up here. Let's see here. Oops. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, okay. 
continue from, oh, all right, great. Um, so let me just back up for a second. Due to the explicit nature of these questions and the subsequent uh, lack of confusion um, associated with correct employee classification, although I might um, uh, I might have miscoined that, I think I would say confusion, uh, misclassification lawsuits are on the rise and uh, progress has been seen. Uh, this is a really cool case uh, involving FedEx. Um, they were the subject of one of these cases. Um, the outcome was that 2,300 workers previously considered independent contractors were found to be misclassified. So I just uh, extracted a couple of things from the case that I thought might be of interest to you. Um, the uh, main thing here being FedEx's argument. They argue that the drivers provide their own trucks and didn't have to follow specific routes, but the court determined that by dictating hours, uniforms to be worn, and mandatory company-provided training, FedEx was exerting control inappropriate for contractors. So I'm not sure what jurisdiction this came out of because I think uh, most of us are familiar with seeing FedEx workers um, in uh, FedEx uh, trucks. Um, but um, in this jurisdiction, I believe um, before this litigation uh, went to court, uh, the drivers actually uh, provided their own trucks. And so that's, um, that's why the facts here are a little bit different uh, than what we see today. Um, however, um, the court uh, determined that um, the fact that FedEx dictated the hours, the uniforms, and uh, mandatory company provided training, that uh, it was more in line with an employer-employee relationship. The court made clear that absolute control isn't required for employee classification, just a certain amount above and beyond what would be expected of an independent contractor. So um, when they speak to this, what they're saying is that the control element does not have to be, um, it doesn't have to be as um, tight as one might uh, think and as restrictive as one might think. It's just a, a modicum amount that uh, goes above and beyond what would be expected of a, an employer independent contractor relationship. And so that's important to note uh, because absolute and unfettered control is not um, essential in order for there to be an employer employee relationship. Even a small amount is enough to cross the threshold into employer employee um, classification. In some cases, a worker may still be considered an employee by title alone, even if the control test questions demonstrate otherwise. And this is what's known as an employee by statute. And here are the roles that are um, included. Officers of corporations, as well as superintendents, managers, and other supervisory personnel. Uh, note that corporate directors are not generally considered employees for their uh, directorial duties. Statutory employees, including drivers engaged in food service distribution, employees who work from home according to an employer's specifications, and full-time traveling or city salesmen. Uh, FICA taxes must be withheld from statutory employees if, um, and these are the three um, requirements, 
First, the majority of services must be provided by the worker in question. Second, the worker doesn't have a substantial investment in the tools and facilities required to satisfy the tasks. And third, the tasks are part of an ongoing relationship. And then we have Section 218 agreements or workers of uh, state or local government covered by Section 218 of the Social Security Act. Uh, while statutory employees are considered employees, statutory non-employees are not. Workers who fit into this classification, employees by statute, include uh, real estate agents who operate independently and make most of their income on commission, direct sellers, and companion caregivers not employed by a parent company. So now that we've reviewed um, our main categories, what about suspected misclassification? Now, there are steps that can be taken to uh, right previous wrongs for um, an employer. Uh, but when we talk about suspected misclassification, it can also be on the part of the worker himself. Um, but let's address this from um, the perspective of those who believe that they're improperly classified. Um, it's first recommended that those who believe that they're improperly classified um, to speak to their employer. In some cases, employers do not mean to misclassify workers and are not malicious about their practices and truly don't realize the issues at hand. I'll tell you uh, from firsthand experience that um, this tends to be the um, uh, this tends to be the um, majority of those that I at least have had contact with. Uh, the worker um, or the employer rather did not have any nefarious motive and simply was ignorant um, of what uh, the rules were. And so it was necessary to sit down and kind of go through the factors and explain, you know, how this works. Um, and in many cases, as soon as uh, they were apprised of, um, of the steps and of the uh, requirements that had to be taken, uh, they immediately, um, you know, did what was necessary in order to uh, properly classify the workers. However, um, this step should be taken on a case-by-case -case basis, um, and workers concerned about job security um, may not be ready to come forward. Um, so it could arise uh, from an employer who um, comes to you with uh, some general questions, or it could be a worker who, um, as I said, you know, might be concerned about their um, their status and how they're being classified that comes to you with questions about this, or um, it still could be it, it could still be a situation where the employer comes to you after some of his or her workers have uh, raised questions about uh, their status. Um, so uh, regardless, um, you know you might be dealing with the employer or you might be dealing with a worker. Uh, the next step is to get the uh, government involved. Um, and this is, again, if we're dealing with a situation uh, where we're 
where we have, um, you know, an improper classification and uh, we have determined that there is an improper classification. Um, there's a special form. It's SS-8. It's called Determination of Worker Status for Purposes of Federal Employment Taxes and Income Tax Withholding. Uh, workers can request a determination by the IRS by filing uh, this form. It outlines many of the same principles that were listed above and even takes things a step further, categorizing forms of support into three distinct buckets. Um, and you'll see this on the form itself and in the instructions. There's what's called behavioral control, financial control, and relationship between the service consumer and worker. By behavioral control, what we're referring to here is the presence of rules regarding scheduling, training, tools, equipment, and work performance. By financial control, we're referring to issues concerning who pays workers' expenses, like workspaces and equipment and how workers are paid. And um, by the third uh, bucket, what we're referring to is the presence of advantages like benefits or restrictions like non-compete or non-disclosure agreements. Upon receipt of Form SS-8 from a worker, again, we're actually looking at this, we're viewing this now from the perspective of the worker who believes that he or she is misclassified. Um, so just to go back for a second, um, workers are requesting a determination by the IRS by virtue of filing this form. Uh, the IRS, upon receipt of the form, will then send the same form to the service consumer to be completed. Uh, the case will be assigned a technician who reviews both forms and determines a ruling based on the law. If a formal determination is issued by the IRS, it is considered binding, um, and not just for that case, but for all future cases with the same set of facts. If an information letter is sent, this is not binding, but rather ad, um, advisory. So it's very important to uh, note the form that the determination has taken. If it's a final determination issued by the IRS, it is binding not only on that case, but also on future cases that have uh, the same or a similar set of facts. If it's Take, if the determination takes the form of, of an information letter, it's not binding, but rather considered advisory. Now, interesting. Let's just, um, sorry, let's just jump in here with our sure. next one. All right. And this next one is up and going. It replied the 20 factors published by the IRS. Nearly everyone having put in their response already, so I appreciate that. Taking a look at the results. 45% say yes, and 55% say no. Interesting, okay. Uh, let 
let's go back. Um, I wanted to mention briefly about the statute of limitations um, when it comes to filling out this SS8. Uh, the statute of limitations for a refund continues to run uh, during this time, uh, regardless of the preparation of Form SS8. So what that means essentially is that the clock continues to tick down on the uh, ability of the worker to request a refund. So um, the bad part about this is that the worker kind of gets um, flim-flammed because to the extent that the determination um, it goes in the worker's favor, if the statute of limitations on a refund claim has expired, um, then it's too late for the worker to uh, collect um, anything in a refund uh, suit. And we'll talk about that in a second because um, the worker can actually seek um, some penalties um, and uh, from from the employer if he or she has been misclassified. Um, the misclassification usually has to rise to the to the level of willful and deliberate before um, awards will be issued to the worker. Um, but nonetheless, um, you should note that uh, the preparation of form SS8 does not, um, in any way stop the statute of limitations on a refund claim from running. So yes, the clock continues to run, and that could be to the worker's detriment if a determination from the IRS comes back in their favor. <clears throat> if a taxpayer is concerned about this, he's encouraged to file Form 1040X, the amended individual income tax return as soon as possible with the words protective claim at the top and under part three explanation of changes. Um, this is the language that uh, the worker should um, write at the top. Filed form SS8 with the IRS office in Holtzville, New York. By filing this protective claim, I reserve the right to file a claim for any refund that may be due after a determination of my employment tax status has been completed. So that's uh, one way to avert uh, the disaster of um, coming up against the statute of limitations that has expired. While it's possible to give the IRS a heads up via Form SS-8, it's far more likely for the IRS to note misclassification through a standard business audit. So that um, is yet another way that these cases uh, come to the attention of the IRS uh, through a standard audit. One of the biggest red flags the IRS looks for and something that can actually trigger an audit is a substantial number of 1099 uh, nines with large numbers in box seven. Um, and box seven is the non-employee compensation box. So um, you can you can bet your tail that um, that is one of the boxes that the IRS has probably uh, mapped to some type of um, alert system. Um, and uh, the larger the number in that box, uh, the more uh, the 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 uh, uh, the more the waving of that red flag to the IRS, and the more the signal that that um, employer um, might be a candidate for audit. So very important um, to uh, to discuss this with the employer.
For those found to be miscategorized who have not yet filed taxes, the amount reported on Form 1099 should be included on Line 7 of Form 1040. FICA tax must then be calculated manually using Form 8919. Uh, and that might be a form that you're not familiar with. Um, however, it is um, known as the uncollected Social Security and Medicare tax on wages. And again, this is dealing with um, those who are found to be miscategorized who have not yet filed taxes. Uh, these, these, this is the procedures that, um, that uh, should be followed. Uh, the FICA tax must be calculated manually. Further, the taxpayer should include Form 4852, substitute for Form W-2, Wage and Tax Statement, to stand in for the W-2 that should have been provided. If taxes were already filed, Form 1040X, the amended individual income tax return, will be required to amend the original filing and request a refund of any self-employment tax paid. Because keep in mind, as we discussed earlier, the, um, the worker also pays a share of the self-employment tax. Um, so uh, not only does the employer uh, pay it, uh, they have to withhold it, but the uh, worker, him or herself, does um, you know does pay a percentage of the self-employment tax, and to the extent that they uh, are requesting a refund, then it's necessary to file the 1040X um, uh, to amend the original filing and request a refund of any self-employment tax paid. If a W-2 is eventually offered, an additional amendment may be suggested. As FICA taxes are jointly paid, employers who are working to change poor practices should request employees fill out Form 4669, Statement of Payments Received, to account for the portion a worker paid on his own behalf. Um, so again, it's a good faith. It's like a... Um, uh, an olive branch, so to speak, that uh, the employer um, gives out to um, to make it look as if they really are trying to get it right. Um, and so, uh, if they're looking to change poor practices, then they uh, the employer that is should request the employees fill out that form forty six sixty nine uh, to account for the portion that the worker paid on his own behalf. In some rare and unfortunate circumstances, a change in classification may result in a deficiency if a worker was taking deductions on Schedules A or C that aren't permitted for a W-2 employee to claim. Uh, there's no relief for workers in misclassification cases, so these changes will require an amended return and further payment. So the situation here is one where the uh, worker um, was uh, treated as an independent contractor, but at the end of the day, a determination was made that he or she should have been an employee. Uh, well, uh, one of the things that goes along with that, of course, is that uh, the W-2 employee uh, pay um, a certain amount of self-employment uh, taxes. And um, to the extent that uh, the worker um, you know, was taking deductions on Schedules A or C that weren't permitted 
uh, for a W-2 employee to claim, um, then uh, they will have to um, make good on that um, by uh, filing an amended return and uh, make further payment. So uh, that's one of the downsides, although um, the benefits usually outweigh the burden here of having to make that further payment. Uh, so you were illegally misclassified and you're mad about it. Um, now what? And now we get into the area of uh, litigation and suing the employer for additional penalties. Uh, it's rare uh, that this happens uh, because normally the employer, even if they are resistant to um, efforts by the worker to change their practices and come clean, um, and uh, classify the workers properly, they usually get religion fast, the employer that is, uh, by uh, way of a phone call from the IRS. And usually uh, the wrongs are righted um, quickly and swiftly um, because the employer realizes that um, they're on the ropes and that this could get even worse um, as things go on. And so a lot of times the workers don't escalate it to the matter of a lawsuit, even if they've received a favorable determination. But nonetheless, um, a percentage of these cases do actually make their way to uh, the court. In some cases, a lawsuit may be the appropriate response. Uh, this is usually um, if the employer has become recalcitrant and um, is just obstinate about the classification um, of the worker as an independent contractor and um, stubbornly refuses to entertain um, any uh, alternative or argument. Under Section 7434, there may be recourse for the victims of those who knowingly file a fraudulent information return. So when we get into the area of fraud, uh, we automatically know that we're dealing with a heightened element, uh, mens rea element, or what you call mental element that has to be proven in order to uh, get a recovery. Damages can range from 5000 to the true value of the damage that resulted from the changes in filing status, as well as the cost of bringing legal action, including reasonable legal fees. So to the extent that the worker prevails, not only would they be entitled to damages, but they would be entitled to uh, their reasonable legal fees, meaning the cost of hiring an attorney to file the action and to um, litigate it in a court of law. To win this kind of case, um, there are some uh, elements, uh, well, there are always elements that have to be proven in a court of law, um, but there are some heavy uh, elements um, in this type of case. And that's why um, a lot of times workers don't uh, pursue this because they realize that um, meeting these um, standards um, can be very difficult. So uh, what has to be proven is that an information return like a 1099 was issued. Uh, second, that the return was fraudulent. And third, that the return was issued willingly and knowingly. And I can tell you through experience that uh, willingly and knowingly are heightened uh, elements and are very difficult to prove. Um, it's not as simple 
as opening up the employer's head and uh, looking inside to see what they were thinking at the exact moment in time when the alleged fraud was being uh, committed. Instead, what uh, has to be looked at is um, circumstantial evidence uh, or what we might call badges of fraud and um, the outward conduct um, that uh, was exuded by the employer will infer what they were thinking on the inside. And that's how a mental element is proven in uh, the law. But it's very difficult because a lot of times employers don't um, leave a track of um, or a roadmap of evidence that leads to fraud. And uh, there's not a proverbial smoking gun in these cases. There are um, there are things, there are items of evidence that can be marshaled together that certainly uh, together can um, be used to make an inference that there was fraudulent conduct, but it usually, arguments can usually be made both ways. Um, so seldomly is there a smoking gun that, um, you know, that definitively establishes willing and knowing conduct. A good faith belief that correct measures were taken will be enough to remove the scent of fraud. Um, and so uh, oftentimes good faith belief um, is a defense that is raised by uh, the employer. Uh, but a lack of good faith, of course, uh, has the opposite effect. And that often suggests that um, there was some willfulness or nefarious conduct involved in misclassifying the workers. There is a time limit on Section 7434, and that is six years from the date the return is first filed or one year after the fraudulent return would have been identified through reasonable care. But the IRS has no set limit to bring charges against an employer. So if the IRS is the one bringing the charges, it's um, kind of, um, you know, a uh, time in, they have until time immemorial, so to speak. But if it is a worker who's bringing the action, it's six years from the date the return is first filed or one year after the fraudulent return would have been identified through reasonable care. So we're dealing with um, uh, probability um, and assumptions uh, when it comes to the latter part of that rule. Uh, now, whistleblower. Um, sorry, just before we go into sure. whistleblower award. Let's uh, launch our next one. And that one's up. Would you know what to do if an employer came to you with an honest belief that his or her workers were misclassified? Would have interested, been interesting to get the answers to this poll prior to the webinar. And then one after, but we'll see. So far, about an 80-20 split between yes and no. Get our last final responses in. Great. Okay. Oops. All right. We'll go ahead and close on this poll. We'll have one more after this. Back to you. Cool. Uh, whistleblower awards. Um, this uh, issue comes comes up uh, ru routinely. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, the IRS 
has a long history of rewarding whistleblowers who help with the identification of tax fraud, and employee misclassification is no different. Under Section 7623, rewards may be available for those who provide actionable tips on employee uh, miscategorization. Uh, So yes, it does apply to misclassification of workers. Um, and uh, there are forms that have to be completed. It's a very long, drawn-out process. Um, uh, there are uh, there are those that prevail um, and that do, in fact, uh, receive um, sizable uh, whistleblower awards. Um, however, those tend to be in the minority. Should the IRS determine that any tips provided contribute to judicial or administrative action, the whistleblower may be eligible to receive 10 to 30% of collected proceeds. Um, so if you do the math, you can see that the amounts um, uh, of these awards can uh, potentially be astronomical. Anyone submitting information that could result in a reward should file Form 211, Application for Award of Original Information. If the case is personal, this can be included in Form SS-8. Okay, the ignorance defense. Um, And this, of course, would be asserted by the employer. Um, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Well, It's a common defense for companies classifying workers incorrectly, and in many cases it's true or it was true at least at one point or another. Uh, While some businesses certainly don't set out to defraud the government, uh, most had misguided, albeit good faith, reasons to begin to misclassify workers in the first place. Um, And so that's why the ignorance defense uh, doesn't pass the smell test. Um, it's, uh, it's one that, uh, is basically the first, uh, defense that's raised by the employer. Um, but, um, in a court of law, it, uh, doesn't fly. Um, it's just too self-serving if you think about it, uh, to, uh, argue ignorance, especially if there are items of evidence that would totally contradict, uh, an ignorance defense. Now, again, um, you know, I don't like to make generalizations because there really are those who truly didn't mean um, to escape the law and uh, truly are sincere about um, their misunderstanding of how it worked and what was going on and want to right the wrong immediately. Um, And so in those cases, um, they should do just that and uh, not sit on their laurels any longer, but immediately take the steps that we've discussed to right the ship and um, properly classify the workers. Those who uh, really and truly did not mean to escape the law have protection, and that protection is found under Section 530 of the Revenue Act of 78. Um, In that section, it safeguards those who made an honest mistake in worker classification. To qualify, okay, so you can't just um, uh, you can't just arbitrarily jump into this. Um, you have to meet some uh, requirements, and um, the qualifications for this protection are as follows: first, a reasonable basis for treating employees as contractors, like similar and frequent behavior elsewhere in the industry. In other words, if uh, competitors Um, and other businesses in the same industry treat their workers as an independent contractor, 
um, that is a sign that the worker was or that the employer was operating in good faith. Second, consistency in classification among all workers in a similar position. And third, reporting consistency. If there are irregularities in reporting, then that is going to gut that um, requirement for protection. But there has to be consistency. While relief is available under Section 530, the IRS also offers a classification settlement program to ease the burden. This allows the IRS to support those with potential misclassification issues early on in the process to avoid the possibility of appeals or litigation. In some cases, the IRS must offer the option of a CSP for taxpayers to reject or accept. In this process, um, the IRS will first determine if misclassification applies, as well as if Section 530 relief is appropriate. That is step one. If any basis for mischar mischaracterization is found and all 1099 paperwork was filed consistent with the law, the IRS may offer an adjustment equal to 25% of any deficiency in the most recent tax year under investigation. And again, this is through the classification settlement program. Um, if any basis is found for miscategorization mis uh, and all 1099 paperwork was filed, the IRS may offer a generous adjustment equal to, 10, equal to 25% of any deficiency in the most recent tax year under investigation. If there appears to be no sound reasoning for classification and none of the requirements under Section 530 that we just discussed are met, the service consumer must pay 100% of the adjusted amount for the most recent tax year. So you can see the uh, wide disparity between 25% and 100%. That's why um, every effort must be made to try to satisfy all of those elements um, because that could actually mean the difference between whether the business stays in business or goes out of business. In both of these situations, employers must be willing to reclassify their employees. So um, to the extent that the, you have a stubborn employer who wants to go about uh, continuing to classify their workers um, improperly as independent contractors, you've got a problem because one of the um, in, inherent um, conditions of the classification settlement program is that the employer agree to reclassify their workers as employees. CSP participation is optional and service consumers have the right to an appeal or administrative review. This is just kind of like a way to um, resolve the worker classification issue without um, the risk of an adverse ruling in appeals or administrative review. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's for, the, it's for the employer who has kind of uh, seen the light, so to speak, and acknowledges that they were wrong and want to get, uh, want to right the ship. So CSP is a quick and efficient way of accomplishing that goal. Uh, we then have Voluntary Classification Settlement Program. This is an alternative uh, to the traditional CSP program, and um, it's an option for those who voluntarily come forward to report potential misclassification 
before the IRS or Department of Labor has caught whiff of it. So um, this is no different than any other voluntary disclosure program that the IRS um, institutes. Uh, the spirit behind voluntary disclosure is that the party who is in the wrong here, the employer, comes forward voluntarily before the IRS or Department of Labor have intervened. And um, by that, what we're referring to is before the IRS or Department of Labor has um, caught wind of what was going on and has sent a letter uh, to the employer um, and suggesting that there's going to be an audit that's going to focus centrally on uh, worker classification um, or that there's an audit already in effect. It's then too late to take advantage of any voluntary classification. Um, the worker or the employer rather has to come forward and volunteer this um, before the IRS or Department of Labor have um, dropped any letters, notices, or have begun any examinations of the company. The Voluntary Classification Settlement Program is a big, I would say, huge incentive for those who haven't been targeted yet through VCSP companies. And this is, this, this is incredible, really, when you think about it. Companies are permitted to reduce their tax liabilities to just over 1% of the wages paid to reclassified workers while abating all penalties and interest. So by all means, you want to discuss the Voluntary Classification Settlement Program with any prospective employer who comes to chat with you about this, because this could be a huge windfall for the company um, uh, based on the fact that uh, all penalties and interest are abated and uh, the tax liability um, is permitted to be reduced to just over 1% of the wages paid to reclassified workers. Further, successful program completion can prevent audits for unpaid employment tax in past years. Um, so again, yet another uh, perk of the Voluntary Classification Settlement Program. Uh, we then have requesting a tax court determination. Now, we talked about requesting an IRS determination. This is a tax court determination, and that means that we're going to U.S. tax court to request a determination. When um, a Section 530 defense isn't an option and a CSP is rejected, a tax court determination might be an alternate pathway to consider. It certainly is going to be expensive because um, tax court, um, you know, requires the hiring of, you know, a tax professional who has passed all of the tax court exams and is qualified to practice before the tax court. Um, and these tax court cases can sometimes go a number of calendar calls before they even get litigated. Some will resolve um, in, at the calendar calls because uh, the personnel that uh, you're dealing with is different. As opposed to dealing with the examiner, you're usually dealing with an attorney from the IRS chief counsel's office who may not be as emotionally invested in the uh, saga or ordeal that the examiner was. And so he or she may be more willing to uh, give in a little bit 
And um, the other issue, of course, is the volume of cases that the attorney from IRS chief counsel's office carries. Uh, they're not unlike prosecutors in um, you know, state court where they come in with as many as 100 files and um, they're looking to try to resolve as many uh, so as to avoid having to litigate virtually every case that they have um, because one can imagine um, how that would put them on the brink of insanity. So there is incentive um, to resolve cases at cal calendar calls. And when a case goes to U.S. tax court, it doesn't always get litigated. Um, a small percentage of them do, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's going to become costly because of counsel fees and or tax professional um, fees. Section All right, Mike, we're, um, we're right up against uh, our oh. time here today so i wanted to get our final poll up and going for yes definitely one and uh as we're getting that last poll in michael say thank you very much fantastic job as always and certainly do appreciate everything that you share we tried to get through the whole thing uh during today's session um, obviously slides a few people asking copy of the slides will remain available in your account so if you haven't accessed those yet you can certainly go back and grab those as a resource We'll also have the recording posted later in the day today, so if you miss anything or need to review it, more than welcome to do just that. Get our final poll in here. As long as you were able to respond to uh, three of the polls, we're in for 75 minutes. You're A-OK -okay for the 1.5 CBE credit. Again, you'll see an email from us at CPA Academy. Letting you know it's all set and available in your account. And uh, like we said previously, we're going to get all these questions passed along to Mike once we wrap up with today's course. So. Be on the lookout for a response there. Any questions administratively, however, please do reach out to us here at CPA Academy. We'll be happy to help address any and all of those concerns. So once again, Mike, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it, appreciate the content. We'll go ahead and close down this poll, uh, about 80% saying yes. And uh, once again, I will say thank you to you and looking forward to having you back soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody.